0: Would you please stand with me as we read the word of God together and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 78, Psalm 78. I will read only verses 1 through 8 this morning, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, a maskeel of Asaph, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, it is such a tremendous joy to gather together with your people on this Lord's day. We thank you so much for the grace that you have shown to us that is truly amazing. We thank you for saving us from our sins. We thank you for setting your love upon us when we were not lovely in your eyes, As we are at this Christmas season of the year, we are so mindful that you sent your Son into the world, that he took upon himself a human body, so that in that body he might die for our sins. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ, and we thank you for his crucified body that was nailed to the tree. We thank you, O God, that you judged your Son in our place so that we might have forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life. And, Father, as people who are saved by the gospel and who find our lives in the gospel, I pray that you would strengthen us as families, that the great truth of the gospel would be given to our children. That we would be faithful to teach our children the gospel. That we would teach them your truth. That they would put their confidence in God. That they would not forget the works of God, but they would keep your commandments. Father, we pray that you would save our children from their own rebellious hearts and from their own unbelief. We commend all of our young people to you that they would be trophies of grace. We thank you, O God, that you are a saving God and that you are able to save young children. And we pray that you would be willing to do so. We thank you, O God, that we can pray all of these things with great confidence as we pray in the name of your Son and according to your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Thank you, Matt and Caitlin, and for everyone else who contributed to our music uh, this morning. It is such a wonderful way for us to express our love and worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, all of you. Well please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and I would direct your attention to verse 21. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, Part 8, and as we begin our time in the Word of God, I want to read verses 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This is the sacred and holy word of God. One of the most exhilarating and glorious experiences in all of life is the birth of a child. There is nothing like it. It is difficult to put into words just how amazing it is to become the parent of a little baby. But once a baby is born, that is only the beginning the beginning of a demanding process that lasts for about 18 years or so in which you are responsible for the life of another human being. The only thing that can match the overwhelming sense of joy in the birth of a child is the sense of the enormous weight of responsibility that every parent bears in the raising of their children. So the question we ask is this, How are we to raise our children? How are we to raise our children? Perhaps you've noticed that having a baby is not like buying a lawnmower. A baby doesn't come with an instruction manual attached to it. So how is a parent supposed to know what to do? That is a very desperate question that every parent asks, especially on the day of the birth of their child. One person I know said when their first child was born, you take it home, you feed it, and you hope it grows. That was sort of their philosophy of parenting in the first week. And that is a good start. You want to take it home, you want to feed it, and hope that it grows. But, of course, there is much, much more to parenting children than that. While children are not born with an instruction manual, Thankfully, God has not left us to ourselves to figure out how to parent. He himself has given to us in the Bible an instruction manual for how to raise children. And part of that instruction manual is found in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. As you will know by now, in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul begins to address specific groups of people within the church. And really he is addressing three relationships of people within the church, the first of which is the marriage relationship in verses 18 and 19, and the second relationship is the parenting relationship in verses 20 through 21. Over the last two weeks, we have seen in verse 20 that Paul directly addresses the children of the church, and we learn that the most important relationship that a child has, other than their relationship with God, is with their parents. That is foundational to Christian parenting. We also learn that the one overarching responsibility that God gives to children is that they are to obey their parents at all times, in all things, without delay, without arguing, without excuses, and with a happy heart. They are to do this because it honors their parents, because it is what is best for them, and most of all, because it pleases the Lord. Well, that brings us now to verse 21, where Paul directly addresses the fathers of the church. We are going to look at verse 21 under two headings, and because the subject of parenting is so vital to our lives, we are not going to hurry through this portion of our study. We will devote at least three messages to the great subject of Christian parenting. This morning we will begin to look at Colossians 3.21, we will do a Christmas message next week, the following week we will come back to Colossians 3.21, and then in a third message we will look at the parallel verse in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, so that gives you sort of a road map of where we are going. Now, with Colossians 3.21 before us, the first heading for our consideration, if you look on your notes, is the address to fathers. And I want you to please observe the first word in verse 21 is the word fathers. The Greek term that Paul uses is pater, and it means father. It is a gender-specific term, but there are some commentators who believe that Paul, when he uses this word, is addressing both fathers and mothers. The word pater can be used of both parents as it is used in Hebrews 11.23 to speak about the parents of Moses, but that is an unusual use of pater. And it is not how I think Paul is using it here. He is using it in its normal, gender-specific way, fathers. If you look at the immediate context of our verse, Paul refers to both parents in verse 20. You will note that he uses the word parents, and this is not the same Greek word that he uses in verse 21, pater. And so if Paul's intention was to address both fathers and mothers in verse 21, then he would have used the word parents as he does in verse 20. Or he could have said fathers and mothers, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he specifically addresses the fathers of the congregation. And that brings up an important question. Why would Paul only address the fathers and not both parents? The answer is because the fathers are the head of the home. They are the leader of the family. While it is true that both of the parents are responsible for the raising of their children, it is also true that ultimately this responsibility falls upon the shoulders of Of fathers. The buck stops with fathers. Now, in most families, the mother will actually spend more time with the children than the father because of his work outside the home, but her care for and training of the children is to be done under the leadership and the direction of the father. And so, listen carefully, fathers. You cannot turn the responsibility to raise your children completely over to your wife. You must take a leadership role when it comes to the raising of your children. You must be involved in the lives of your children as a teacher, as a model, an example, a guide, a helper... And a friend, you are to give yourself to the teaching of your children, the the disciplining of your children, the training of your children. It is a grief to my heart how little the role of fathers is valued and practiced in our culture today, even within the church As you well know, the state of fatherhood has fallen upon very hard times, and it grieves me to say that. On your notes, you'll notice the quote by Al Mohler, and he writes this very tragically. In many sectors of our society, fathers are most noted by their absence. Indeed, millions of American children are growing up without any significant father figure, much less their biological father. That is a grief. The absence of fathers is one of the most significant social problems facing our nation. I was recently with some kids who aren't a part of our church family. You don't know them. I wouldn't talk about them this way if you knew them. But I was with a couple of young kids, and they are being raised by their single mother. Their father is so absent from their lives that if these kids were to walk past their father on the street, they would not recognize him. That was tragic to hear that. But unfortunately, there is more. In addition to the millions of physically absent fathers, there is another problem in our homes. It is the reality of fathers who are physically present in the home, but who are absent from their families in many other ways. They are there, but they are not there. They are present, but distant, They are fathers who have very little involvement in the lives of their children, even though they live under the same roof. It is not uncommon for fathers to spend more time on their smartphones and in front of a television screen than with their children. It is not uncommon for fathers to spend more time and energy playing at a hobby than with their children. That, too, is a tragedy. I wholeheartedly agree with Doug Wilson, who says there is a hunger problem in America, a hunger for fathers, a hunger for fathers. So what does it mean to be a father? It means much more than simply producing children. There is a vast difference between becoming a father and being a father, Becoming a father is merely an act of physical reproduction. But being a father involves a total life commitment to your children. And so one of the most important things that a father can give to his children is himself. Himself. And so I ask myself, I ask the fathers of this church, do your children have you? Do your children have you? Fathers have plans for their careers. They have plans for their recreation and their hobbies. They have plans for their vacation. They have plans for their retirement, but less often do they have a plan for parenting. And as the saying goes, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. But let me take this even further. Not only is it imperative for a father a Christian father, to have a plan for parenting his children, he must have a plan that is biblical in its philosophy and in its practice. So the primary source that a Christian father is to use in developing a plan for parenting is not what he views on television. It is not from secular magazines or articles or books. It is not from pop psychology. It is not what is trending in the culture. It is the timeless, authoritative Word of God. So if a father is to have a good and wise plan for parenting his children, he will use the Bible for his curriculum because the Bible contains God's plan for parenting. And so Paul addresses fathers because they are called by God to be the leaders of their families. And so, fathers, how are you doing? Are you leading your families? Are you leading your families well and faithfully? Now, let me say something else about the fact that Paul addresses fathers. In a father's relationship with his children, duty is not one sided. Duty is not one-sided. In other words, it's not just the children who have a responsibility to their parents, but parents and fathers have responsibility to their children. The duty is two-sided. And this is especially important in the context of the ancient world in which the Colossians lived 2000 years ago in the context of the Roman Empire Paul's instruction to fathers was revolutionary it was countercultural and that is because Roman law was anything but friendly to children especially when it came to a child's relationship to his or her father. On your notes, you will notice a Latin phrase, patria potestis. It means the father's power. Under Roman law, this was a part of their system. And to understand this idea of patria potestis, the father's power, William Barclay, on your notes, look at what he says in describing this. A Roman father had absolute power over his family He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and he could punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over the child's whole life so long as the father lived. A Roman son never came of age. That's the father's power in Paul's day. And then further commenting on this, James Boy says, when a baby was born, it was placed before its father. If the father stooped and lifted the child, the child was accepted and was raised as his. If he turned away, the child was rejected and was literally discarded. Such rejected children were either left to die or they were picked up by those who trafficked in infants. These people raised children to be slaves or to stock the brothels. One Roman father wrote to his wife from Alexandria, quote, If you have a child, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out patria potestas, the power of a father. In the culture of Paul's day, this is how things were. In the culture of Paul's day, it was expected that children had responsibilities to their parents, especially to their fathers. But it was absolutely revolutionary to teach or to say that fathers had responsibilities to their children, as Paul does in Colossians 3:21. And so it is very significant that Paul begins with his address to fathers. And that brings us now to the second heading of our verse: the warning to fathers. The essence of Paul's instruction to fathers is a warning. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. It's a prohibition. It's a negative command. It's a warning. And I find it interesting that Paul does not instruct fathers here to lead their children. We might expect him to say that. But he doesn't have to say that because the leadership of fathers was already assumed. So Paul's greatest concern about fathers was listen to this, how they would exercise their parental authority. And therefore, he warns the fathers against the abuse of their God-given authority. God has given authority to fathers in the home, but fathers do not have the authority to exercise their authority however they wish. Their authority is to be governed and restrained, by grace, and by love. On your notes, there is a quote from John Stott who says, It is not the exercise, but the restraint of their authority, which he urges upon them. So here's Paul urging the restraint of fathers in their parental responsibility. You might remember that this is the same pattern that Paul followed with wives and husbands in the previous verses. And so while Paul recognizes the rightful place of authority among certain relationships in the church, he is at the same time greatly concerned about the wise and gracious use of authority in both marriage and parenting. It is further interesting to note how concise Paul's instruction to fathers is. How many verses is it? Just one verse. I have many books in my library on parenting, and if you were to put all of them together, they would comprise literally thousands of pages. And yet when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians about the vital subject of parenting, he devotes all of his instruction to this one verse. And what is more, in the Greek text... There are only 10 words, 10 words to parenting. This speaks to the ability of God to communicate a lifetime of truth in an economy of words. And so while we are only given one verse consisting of 10 words in Greek on parenting, the volume of application from this verse, from this one verse is enormous. This is a parenting manual in one verse. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Do you see the tenderness of Paul in what he writes here? His tenderness toward children? I love that about Paul. His concern is for the well-being of children, that they, that the children will not lose hearts. Fathers are to parent in such a way that their children are not to grow discouraged or frustrated or disheartened or resentful or bitter. It is not uncommon for children to grow up resenting their fathers, even hating their fathers. And the way to avoid this is by not exasperating them, by not embittering them, by not provoking them. There is an enormous volume of application here. The parallel verse to this is Ephesians 6.4. Don't turn there, but listen to what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How many fathers raise their children in such a way that it breeds anger and contention in the home, leading children to lose heart? Far too many. Now to clarify, when Paul warns fathers not to provoke their children to anger, he is not saying that fathers must never do anything that makes their children angry. There are going to be, over the course of the parenting years, many occasions, many times, when children become sinfully angry, when they don't get what they want, when they don't get their way, when fathers are doing what is right by them, children will often, they will frequently express sinful anger to their parents, and it begins even when they are in diapers. And when that happens, fathers must not bow to the sinful will of their children. And so if a child gets angry when he is told to do something like clean your room, clean her room, the father is not to let the child have its way. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying give in to the sinful anger of your children. The essence of Paul's warning is that fathers must not use their parental authority in such a way that it causes unnecessary anger in their children by parenting sinfully. By parenting sinfully. On your notes, there is a quote from Curtis Vaughn. I find it to be very helpful. It is a wise parent who seeks to make obedience easy, For his children. Now, if fathers are told not to embitter their children, we need to think very carefully about those things which do embitter our children. We need to know what specific things we are to avoid as parents. But there isn't a divinely inspired list of things that embitter children. So how can we know what these things are? Well, there are two ways as I see it. Number one, if we pay attention to the whole of what the Bible teaches, and number two, if we observe in daily life the sorts of things that provoke anger in our children, then we can compose a list of things that provoke our children to sinful anger. From studying a variety of resources, I have put together a list, a rather long list of things that provoke children to anger. And we're going to look at this list together. Now let me also say this, while Paul is specifically addressing fathers in this text and even in Ephesians chapter 6, these things also apply to mothers. While fathers may be more prone to exasperate their children to anger, mothers too can be guilty of this parental sin. And so what we will look at in our list applies to both parents, to both fathers and mothers, with the understanding that fathers are the leaders of their home. It can also apply more widely to grandparents, to anyone who knows children, who teaches children, or works with children. And so this has a very wide application in how we handle children and relate to children. Now, when addressing children last week, you may remember that I said youth is a very dangerous time of life. There are many landmines in the soil of youth that young people must avoid. Well, the same is also true for parents. There are many landmines in the soil of parenting that we must avoid lest we provoke our children to anger. And so with the time that we have left this morning, we will begin to look at our list of things which parents can do to provoke their children to anger. They are in no particular order, but we begin with number one, this is on your sermon notes, showing favoritism. As a parent, you might have a child If you have multiple children, you might have a child that is easier to deal with than others. No testimonies, please. Or you may have a child that you have more in common with than others. But even if this is the case, even if this is true of your family, you must be very careful about showing favoritism, or you will provoke your children to anger. Let me mention two names in the Bible Jacob and Esau. And if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, you are familiar with those names and where I'm going when I mention them. Jacob was favored by his father Isaac, and his brother Esau was favored by his mother Rebekah. And their home was a disaster. It was a disaster. Later on, when Jacob had children, he had many sons, but there was one son that he favored. And he did not keep it a secret. It was obvious to all of the children who Jacob loved most, namely Joseph. As you will know, Joseph's brothers were so embittered over their father's favoritism that they planned to murder Joseph. I mean, we are all familiar with that story, but just let that sink in. That here is a group of brothers that hate one of the brothers so much, they're considering taking his life. That is serious anger. Instead, you know that they sold Joseph into slavery, and that too was an expression of their deep hatred of Joseph in their hearts. And so parental favoritism in sights sibling rivalry that has the potential of becoming even murderous. Jacob provoked his children to jealousy, which led them to do terrible things to their brother. When you think about children, every child is different. Every child has his or her own strengths and weaknesses. But as a parent, you are to love them equally. Love them equally. As a parent, you may prefer one child's temperament over another or one child's personality over another or one child's strengths over another. You may naturally get along with one child better than with another child. But even still, love them equally. Even if one of your children is more likable or one of them isn't likable at all, love them equally. Avoid the sin of favoritism or else you will provoke your children to anger. Number two in our list, comparing your child to other children, especially in front of them. When children aren't doing what is expected of them, in frustration, parents can fall into this terrible trap of comparing the failings of their children with the successes of other children. Why can't you be like your sister? Why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like so-and-so? Why can't you make better grades? Like so and so? Why can't you play baseball like so and so? If you compare your child to other children in this way, be warned, you will provoke them to anger. Number three in our list pushing achievement beyond reasonable bounds. It is good for parents to encourage their children to achieve certain things in life, but it can easily become unhealthy and even idolatrous. Jim Ellef has written an article, and he titles it, When Ball Becomes Bale, When Sports Become an Idol, and that is a very common idol in the families, even within churches. And so things become very unhealthy and even idolatrous when parents try to live out their fantasies through the lives of their children. For example, you might have a father who loves sports and he wants to push his son into sports and pressure him to achieve in a way that is beyond what that child wants. And that will produce anger in the child. And so let children be themselves. They are individuals with their own personalities, with their own likes and their own dislikes, with their own interests. Listen, parents, your children don't have to be just like you. And that's a hard lesson. I can say that as a parent. Your children don't have to be just like you. They don't have to love the same things that you love and like all the same things that you like. So you can encourage them in a certain direction, in a certain activity, but let them take part in deciding what activities and interests they will have. And be warned, if you, push, if you push achievement beyond reasonable bounds on your children, you will provoke them to anger. Number four, failing to give verbal encouragement. If you want to provoke your children to anger... Never encourage them. Never compliment them. Never speak well of them. Children crave the approval and praise of their parents. And if you fail to give them that, it will provoke them to anger. If you fail to encourage your children, it will Crush them, it will cause them to lose hope, it will give them no reason to try. And so, look for ways that you can compliment your children. Look for those things. Look for good things in the lives of your children where you can say, I am proud of you for that. I am proud of what you've done here or what you have done there. Express verbal encouragement to them. When your child does something that is good, Tell them good job. Praise them for that. Speak well of them to them, to their face, and to others. So give your children verbal encouragement or you will provoke them to anger. And now number five, the last one that we have time for this morning, making them feel unwanted. When your children come to you, If you want to make them angry, just always tell them to go away. Or even if you don't use those words, express that in some other way, with words or with body language. Don't be accessible to them. Make them feel like they are always an intrusion. There are many days when I come home and my children, especially the younger ones, want to show me what they've been working on. And that is a wonderful opportunity for me to show my love and care for them, to look at what they want me to see, to make them feel wanted. And so your children need to know that you want them, that you care about them, that they are important to you, that they, that they are the most special people to you in the world. Well, as I said at the beginning, the only thing that can match the overwhelming sense of joy in the birth of a child is the overwhelming sense of responsibility that every parent bears in raising their children. One of the difficulties of parenting, and I can say this by personal experience many times over, one of the great difficulties of parenting is how much it exposes the sin within the parent. I know of little else that is as sanctifying as being a parent. Getting married is sanctifying, and then if you want sanctification at an even greater level, have children. And that will expose sin in you that perhaps you didn't even know was there. It can be very discouraging to be honest. At times, as a parent, I've gone through that. My wife has gone through that. Every honest parent will say that, that there is a lot of discouragement in parenting. But here is some good news. God is a God of grace. And Jesus died for your sins. And one of the kinds of sins that he died for are your failures as a parent. And so Jesus died for those things that discourage you that grieve you, and what is more, God offers his grace to you, not only to cleanse you of your parental failings, but to give you the necessary grace to endeavor to live as a faithful parent of precious children. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what we have been able to see today. We know that we are only just beginning we thank you for the great privilege of being parents, of having children to raise. It is a stewardship that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. We thank you for how you have created marriage and the family and the home and how the Christian worldview at this point is exceptionally clear. And We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to figure these things out but you have revealed to us in your word a very clear path for how we are to raise our children. And I pray that even the few things that we have said today will be of great help to our families, that you would make us to be the kind of parents and grandparents and, and those who work with children, that you would make us to be the kind of people who want to be kind and gracious, who want to avoid provoking children to sinful anger. May you correct us where we need to be corrected. May you bring conviction where that needs to be had. And may you bring encouragement to us where we fail. We thank you that you are a God of lavish grace. We thank you that Jesus has died for these sins. And we thank you that you do enable us to live faithfully as we seek your grace. Father, I commend all of the children to you once again, and pray that you will save them early in their lives so that you would spare them from a multitude of sins. May you please be gracious to do that. We pray this in the name of Christ, our great Lord. Amen.